Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week we pick a starting point and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to unearth a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are, well, useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is Series 2, Episode 7. Guinness. Right, now we go to Ireland a fair bit, don't we? We do indeed. And the reason why we... I won't do, I won't do the accent. Uh, the reason why we do that is because your parents live there, don't they? They do indeed. So you're allowed to do the accent because you're <laughs> sort of Irish. But we also go because it's a fantastic place to go. It is. It's beautiful. Yes, it is. Particularly the West Coast, which is... We're uh, big fans of the West Coast, aren't we? Oh, we love a bit of West Coast Ireland. Um, and the thing that I'm particularly a fan of is, of course... The black stuff. The black stuff. Guinness. Although, I read with interest that we probably shouldn't call it the black stuff because it isn't actually technically black. No, it's very dark red, isn't it's it? It's a very dark ruby red and if you put it up to the light you can yes. see it apparently. I have tried that. I can't, I'm not convinced but that's what I'm told. You don't let it stand for long enough. You, you chuck it straight down your neck, don't you really? Uh, it, that is very true. Um, I mean obviously I only drink in moderation of course but I find that difficult because... It just slides down the old neck there all too easily and uh, you have to wrestle me out of the pub, don't you? Otherwise I would stay there and drink my body weight in the stuff. And so I thought, let's start this week's episode with Guinness and let's see where it takes us. Now the perfect way to pour Guinness, according to Guinness, and I want all publicans and bartenders in the UK to pay particular attention because we don't seem to be able to do it right no, here. There's a lot of places that it's just ridiculous what they do. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to pour at 45 degree angle to three quarters full and then you have to wait. You leave it. Leave it. Don't touch it for exactly 119.5 seconds. And I, lo I just love how specific that is. Not two minutes. Uh, half a second shy of two minutes. You then top it up and uh, as you do so you straighten the glass. And I thought this was funny. Guinness reckons that 162,000 pints are wasted each year to bushy moustaches. Um, another interesting fact about um, Guinness, well it's about the Guinness family. Oh yeah. You know that, that's a huge family isn't it? Yeah. And in fact an heir to the Guinness business was a man called Tara Brown, okay, who is related to um, the founder of Guinness, Arthur, through his mother Una, okay, and it's him who is mentioned in the Beatles song "A Day in the Life." Oh yeah, in the lyrics, he blew his mind out in a car. He didn't notice that the lights had changed. Okay, yeah. Do you remember we? we I think they, the that family rings are, a bell. Yeah, yeah. I think the family are from Wicklow. Maybe we when we stayed in Wicklow in Ireland. Yeah, the, that's um, right. That lovely lady telling us about Tara Brown. Was that the one who made? That, um, the amazing porridge with uh, double cream. Yes, <laughs> yes, we essentially had dessert for breakfast. It was delicious. It best, was absolutely delicious. Best porridge I've ever had in my life. Yeah. So, yeah, John Lennon had read about Tara's fatal crash in the newspaper. Apparently, 
Tara had crashed his Lotus Elan car into a parked van after running through a red light at high speed in Kensington, West London. Ah, OK, right. And did you know A Day in the Life was originally banned by the BBC? And it's, oh, right, yeah. yeah. And it's a popular misconception that this was for the lyrics, I'd love to turn you on. But it was actually owing to the Paul McCartney penned lyrics, found my way upstairs mm. and had, had a, a smoke. smoke. Somebody, Somebody spoke and I went, went into a dream. Ah. As the BBC suspected, it was a reference to marijuana. Marijuana. And the ban was only lifted when a writer called David Storey chose the song for his guest spot on Desert Island Discs nearly five years later in 1972. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. And the late, great David Crosby has said that he was at Abbey Road when the Beatles were recording A Day in the Life and was the first person other than the band and producer George Martin to hear its first completed play. What a privilege for him. Yeah. I love his quote. He said, I was high as a kite, so high I was hunting geese with a rake. <laughs> By the time it got to the end of that piano chord, man, my brains were on the floor. <laughs> Good old David Crosby. I used to follow him on Twitter and he used to um, get people, people used to send photos of joints they'd rolled and he'd give them marks out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> A good old fashioned caner. Yeah. Right, going back to the fact that uh, A Day in the Life had been banned until it was played on Desert Island Discs. Yeah. I was doing a bit of research on Desert Island Discs. Right. Yeah, it's the longest running radio programme ever. Oh. Um, and the first episode was aired all the way back in 1942. Flipping And the first castaway was a bloke called Vic Oliver. Right. And now he was a famous music hall star of the time. Okay. Um, but he was also, rather interestingly, Winston Churchill's son-in-law. Okay. So that was pretty interesting. Now, you know the famous theme music. Do, 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 do. Yeah. Well, that piece of music is called "By the Sleepy Lagoon," and it was written by a bloke called Eric Coates. And the piece was inspired by a view from Bognor Regis. Oh wow! Which I really rather like. How lovely! You know, as nice as Bognor Regis is, it's a bit of a stretch to think of it as a tropical desert island. Yeah. But you know how you can hear the wails of herring gulls on the track. Those were added. Well, yes, I'm sure they were. I don't think they got them into the studio to record at the time. And the idea being um, to give a sense of wild isolation. But the Beeb got complaints from listeners saying that these gulls would not be found near a desert island. Oh, And yes. so in 1964, they were replaced by the sound of tropical birds. However, accuracy proved unpopular. So after a few months, the gulls returned. The good old British public. They'll <laughs> complain about anything. The most popular piece of music on Desert Island Discs? Oh, what? The most, what, as the, in The one chosen? that's chosen the most, yeah. Oh. Any ideas? No. I'll tell you. It's Handel's Messiah. And the first 26 popular choices are all classical or operatic. Oh, OK. And which song not classical or operatic do you think takes the top spot? It's actually the 27th most popular song. Is it something by Elvis? No. Frank Sinatra, My Way. That, that would have been my guess. Yeah. It's actually Edith Piaf's Je ne regrette rien. Oh, okay. Which is a pretty solid choice, if you ask mm. me. By the way, I found all this information on this really lengthy academic 
paper right. uh, on the old internet. So I want to give a shout out to the guy who wrote it, Andrew Gustar. Right. And it was part of a study called Statistics in Historical Musicality. Great. So uh, he's written a, an academic essay on Desert Island Discs. Yeah, on all of the choices. Oh, great. And it's quite a lengthy piece. And I, I, I'm sort of torn between, is that an, a huge waste of time or is it brilliant? I mean, the fact of the matter is I really enjoyed reading it, so I'm going to go for the latter. Well, there you go. It's, a, it's an achievement. So thanks, Andrew Gustar. I'm going to run with Edith Piaf. Okay. Apparently, her parents named her after Edith Cavill. Do you, oh, you no, that's a name. There's well, I know the name because there's a pub in Norwich called the Edith Cavill or Cavell. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, she was a. Brit I know nothing about her. Well, she was a British nurse who is celebrated for saving the lives of World War One soldiers of both sides without discrimination and helping rescue 200 Allied troops escape German-occupied Belgium. Wow. For which she was caught court-martialed and eventually executed by the Nazis. Oh man, okay, yeah, wow. That's the thanks you get. Edith Cavell, or Cavell, was shot by firing squad just two months before Edith Piaf was born wow. in 1915. And Piaf's parents hoped the heroic bravery of Cavell Cavill would somehow rub off on their daughter. Right, okay, interesting. Yeah, but poor old Edith Piaf, birth name Edith Gassion, she had a pretty hard life, um, which started right at the beginning. Okay. The ambulance that was supposed to take her mother to the hospital to give birth was a no-show. Oh, right. Yeah, and Edith was delivered on the front steps of her mother's home. Oh, flipping heck, okay. Her mother then abandoned Edith when oh. she was just a baby. Oh dear, okay. And then Edith got a condition called keratitis at the age of three. What? Which led to her losing her sight for a year. Oh, flipping heck. Yeah, with her mother gone, she was brought up by her grandmother, who ran a brothel. Blimey. Of course. Yeah. And Piaf's own daughter died at the age of two. Good grief. And the man she claimed was the love of her life was killed in a plane crash when on his way to visit her. Good grief. So, yeah, there's tragedy aplenty in Piaf's life. Isn't there just? But she doesn't regret anything. No, she, famously so. She ne regret rien. No, quite. Um, do you know how Edith Gassion became Edith Piaf? No, but I've got this funny feeling you're going to tell me. Yes, I am. Piaf in French is little sparrow or little bird. Oh, OK. And the owner of a nightclub, Louis Lepley, who had given Edith her first big break, gave her the name Piaf because she was only four for eight and had a penchant for singing, hence Little Sparrow. Oh, very good. Incidentally, carrying on from all the terrible things that happened in Edith's life, yeah. that nightclub owner, Louis Lepley, oh, go on. was shot dead in oh. some gangster-style assassination. Flipping heck. Yeah. Well, carrying on with Edith Piaf, yeah. I thought I'd look into her discography. Yeah. And um, the first big hit for her was La Vie en Rose. <laughs> yeah, that's been my earworm for, for a good 24 hours now. And I looked up uh, the song on songfacts.com, which is a website I use a lot. It's, it's great, great, actually. It's a great, great resource. And I read there with interest that Grace Jones has mm. done a cover of the song for oh. her first album. Okay. Um, and she claims she recorded it without ever hearing Piaf's version first because she didn't want to be unduly inspired to do it in, in a certain way. And this sent me freewheeling down the rabbit hole 
of Grace Jones. Uh, well, I'm sure there's some great things down her hole. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what, are we in a carry-on film or something? Right. The first fact that I thought was interesting mm. was when she was first signed up with a modelling agency, mm. she moved to Paris and her roommates were two more models who had just been signed up too, yeah. and they were Jerry Hall and uh. Jessica Lang. Oh, Jessica Lang. Yes. And I also read with some amusement, according to the website Mental Floss, another yeah. website I uh, browse often, Grace Jones received a lifetime ban from all Disney properties after she gave quite the performance at the then 1998 Downtown Disney House of Blues in Florida, where, according to the Orlando Sentinel, she pulled her top off, mm. thus exposing herself, and proceeded to spark up and puff on a doobie. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, in a Disney house. <laughs> in a, in a, in Disney a, House of Blues. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't exist anymore. It's something else now, apparently. Right. But, um, yeah, that's that's not going to go down well with the, the Disney, It's is not it? very Disney. And I didn't know this about uh, dear Grace Jones. She married a Turkish bloke called Attila Altenbey. Right. If I've said that right. In 1996, when they eloped to Brazil. However, the relationship ended and he returned to his family in Turkey. And she claims she's still technically married to him because she can't find him to get the divorce sorted. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So I thought that was rather interesting. And a final interesting fact about Grace Jones, mm. if I may be so bold, is that she was originally offered a part in Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Mm -hmm as a replicant called Zora. Right. Um, but she turned it down thinking at the time it was too Hollywood for her and she felt that she'd be selling out. Uh, it was a decision that she claims she regretted immediately and supposedly she turned it down without reading the script, got on a plane to fly somewhere, read the script, regretted her decision, landed, phoned whoever, yeah. the producers, and they said, sorry, we've already we've now given the role to someone else. Oh. Bummer for Grace. She would have looked great in that film, wouldn't she? Did you know that Blade Runner, the film, is based on a novel by Philip K. Dick? Right, OK. And the novel, though, wasn't called Blade Runner. It was called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Wow, why on earth wouldn't they call the film that, I wonder? Yeah, so catchy. The title Blade Runner came from a totally different novel written by Alan E. Norse called The Blade Runner. Right, OK. Completely different plot. OK. So the producer of Blade Runner, the film, had to buy the rights for both books. Ah, interesting. Yeah. And a quick related fact that interested me too... Go on. ...was that a screenplay was written of Norse's book by William S. Burroughs, no less, ah. the beat poet, yeah. but it has never been adapted into a film and remains a novello called The Blade Runner open brackets, a movie, close brackets. Oh, well, how about that? Yeah. And so William S. Burroughs, where do you start with William S. Yes. Burroughs? Did you know that his grandfather invented the first functional adding machine oh, and wow. formed the Burroughs Corporation? Oh, wow. Yeah, and so young Bill got a monthly kickback. And he most famously, perhaps, among many of his exploits, shot his wife dead yes. in, a, in a massively ill-advised William Tell stunt. That's right, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. It didn't end well, of course. No. At a party, Burroughs and his wife, that they were never married legally, but by all intents and purposes, what she was his wife, uh, common-law wife, Joan Volmer... Yeah, OK. ..were on the booze and drugs when Burroughs announced to her, let's do the William Tell Act even though they had never performed the stunt before. And poor old Joan balanced a glass on her head and Burroughs shot and missed, 
and killed her instantly. Flipping heck. Yeah. Well, on to something a little bit lighter. Yeah. Going back to Blade Runner, the film, you will recall it was directed by Ridley Scott. Yes. I think we mentioned that. And I think it's I think it's reasonably well known that he famously directed that old Hovis Bread He did. Advert. Uh... <laughs> yeah, that was made in 1973. Yeah. Apparently it's been voted Britain's favourite advert in one of those, you know, totally pointless polls you get. But I found... This nugget of interesting stroke useless information mm. that Ridley Scott also directed an ad for Maxwell House Coffee oh. in 1971. I feel so at home here now. I guess that's why I'll always be a Maxwell housewife. And the reason why that's interesting is that it happened to feature a young actress called Shakira Bach, right. if I've pronounced that correctly. And it just so happened that a certain Michael Caine one day flicked on the old telly, oh. saw said advert, yeah. claims that he immediately fell in love with her, yeah. and tracked her down, and he only went and bloody married her. <laughs> and he's still with her today. Oh, how lovely. Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review us on wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe, and that way you'll never miss an episode. We'd also love to hear from you, especially if we've got any of our information wrong, or you have some more fascinating facts about something we've talked about, or you could even suggest a subject for our starting point. Our email address is when one thing leads to another at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at when one thing. A massive thank you to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his fantastical album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting us. Join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note that all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity. Mm.